In honor of National School Choice Week, this special episode of The Kevin Roberts Show highlights the best of guests we've had on the show to discuss education, freedom, and parental empowerment. Hear from Governors Ron DeSantis and Ducey, Chris Rufo, and more. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The most important priority, I think, is the universal school choice bills. Uh, I think Iowa is likely to get something done. I'm hoping that Texas also, I'm hearing rumblings in Texas. We're very active will, there. Something will get done. Um, because the, 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 the principles don't change. Uh, they're eternal, uh, if, if, you, if you believe, uh, I think, like we do. Uh, but the strategies and tactics change, and the principles have to be reinterpreted for each generation, or else they grow stale. They're not actually meaning for pe- meaningful for people. Uh, but I think that the conservative principle on universal school choice is very simple. It's breaking up centralized ideological and administrative power, the K-12 school bureaucracies, and, and pushing power, decision-making, and money in, down to the lowest possible level following the principle of subsidiarity, decentralizing power and money, and then saying to parents, hey, you know what? If you don't like what's happening in your public school, as Arizona's done, we'll give you $7,000 a year per child, which is the average tuition rate for private schools, um, that you can take anywhere, public school or charter school, private school, religious school, homeschool, uh, anywhere you want, because we trust you. And then that's going to create a market for alternatives that is going to create a lot of happy people in a more pluralistic and complex and, and layered, textured social fabric. And so there's huge energy because, let's face it, the teachers unions, uh, uh, they done messed up. Uh, uh, they shut down schools. They were masking kindergartners. They were trying to get kids vac- vaccinated against the scientific evidence. They're, and at the same time, pushing critical race theory, pushing radical gender theory. Um, um, this is a historic generational opportunity for change on that issue. And I think that it really is going to I- improve things for everyone, including the public schools. It's, gonna, it's going to uh, force them to compete. It's going to force them to be more responsive to parents. Um, and, you know, I, I have kids, I know you have kids that are later in school, um, but this is something that really, I mean, it, it's at the, the heart of the human experience, what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a family, where you send your kids uh, to get their education. Um, and, and I just think that to me is a model that can be replicated elsewhere, um, but it's a big win that people can put on the board, you know, next year. It can really happen. And I think that will open up so many other avenues uh, for reform. So let's let's switch a little bit. It's very related, but from the political or policy realm to the individual realm, what I like to call the sidewalk level. And the everyday Americans thinking, okay, I can go talk to my state legislator about universal school choice. They need to do that. But we also need to, I think as a movement, be better at explaining how to encourage conservatives to have different behavior as it relates to the institutions in their lives. And I have become very hostile, openly hostile, to most institutions of this country, perhaps evidenced by the fact that I've started a K-12 school because I didn't think the Catholic schools in my town were worth anything, theologically or academically. And as a result of that school opening, I'm not trying to take credit for this, the faculty should, the other schools are starting to improve. And secondly, leading an upstart new Catholic college for the same reason. All of that to say, I've become enamored with the idea 
that there are many institutions in this country that just need to fail. And the hard part for us as conservatives, because we, we honor the past, we honor the people and the ideas in the institutions that cultivated us, is to recognize that about our alma maters. It's a long-winded way of asking you this question. Do conservatives, as they adopt this more activist stance relative to policy, also need to be more activist when it comes to kicking the bad institutions into the sea and leaving them behind? They do, and the alma mater question is something that just boggles my mind. I talk to people all the time that say, oh yeah, I gave you know $50 million to my alma mater. It's like, but why would you do that? You know, the or you know, I gave two million dollars to open up a, a whatever at my old you know university. It's like conservative donors, people that have been successful in business, um, have to realize that their alma mater is today very different than the one they graduated from, and in, in you know. 62 or whatever it may be. Um, and so they have to get smart about giving. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity here uh, uh, that, 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 that you've embodied, you've done, is to say, you know what, maybe uh, uh, you know, your, your, your Yale uh, doesn't need any more money, uh, and maybe actually they're going to put your money to bad use. What about um, actually channeling the entrepreneurial sense? And this is a, a kind of conservative principle, free market principle, that is still really quite meaningful, is we have to be builders. We have to be founders. Um, we have to not just be builders and founders in business, but also, also in our cultural institutions, our educational institutions. And we should be taking, uh, 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 making bold investments in new institutions that can, just by existing, shift everything around them. Um, and, I, I, and I see a, a huge, this, the, the, the most exciting thing that I see on that front today is in education. You have the classical school movement that is, it's, it's exciting. There's a classical school in my area in, in kind of small town Washington state. And I saw their high school, um, their high school curriculum. It's, you know, uh, uh, you know, medieval history, European history, American history, four years of Latin, uh, you know. I, I mean, it's, it's this really great kind of scooping up classical education and, and, and giving new life to those eternal principles. But what's just as exciting is that it's a startup school, uh, uh, you know, with, with, you know, only two, two years, they're kind of growing into it. But it's because it's responding to a hunger out there. And, and I think of my own life experience. I went to public school in California. Uh, no complaints, good public schools. Uh, well, some complaints, but, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, good public schools. But I, I, I look back and I feel like I was, in some sense, uh, uh, um, uh, um, there was a huge hole in it. And it was, well, I didn't read the great books. I didn't, what was the, what was the, this kind of mushy, almost non-ideology. It was like ideology that was so banal. It was like, what did I even learn? What was the content? What was the substance? Um, and, 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 and I think we're seeing that everywhere. It's like, nobody believes in DEI. Nobody believes in, in CRT besides the people that are professionally incentivized to believe it. Um, some people believe in the gender ideology, but most people don't. Um, but we're not giving people an alternative. We have to very clearly say, we're against CRT, but we're for this. And we're gonna actually create institutions that, that, that where you can get this thing. Um, uh, it's classical schools, it's uh, um, something that has uh, 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 magnetism. We have to create a magnetic movement 
and magnetic institutions. At the same time, we're waging war uh, on the on the ones that do need to fail. And magnetic leaders are part of that, and, yeah. and not just political leaders all of whom have been in the news naturally because we just completed an election cycle, but institutional leaders. Really, for Tina and I both, I think, with the issues, everyone always will ask us, well, was it COVID? Was it the masks? It was mm -hmm. this. Everyone wants to make it about something, right? It was about parental rights. Yeah. It was about the fact that as school board members, we watched as parents came to us and said, you know, forced quarantining of healthy children is hurting kids. My children are suffering. They're depressed. They're anxious. Um, the masking yeah. in my own district, um, you know, every district in, in, the, in Florida was able to come up with their own reopening plan. Yeah. And in our reopening plan, um, we had said masks would be required when social distancing wasn't possible. So mm -hmm. it was supposed to be the exception, not the rule. Very quickly, we saw that, I mean, schools are not made for six feet of distancing between kids. <laughs> um, kids are not going to maintain that distance. And so all of a sudden, the masks became the rule. And I very quickly came out and said, wait a second. Yeah. We lied to parents. This isn't what we told them would be happening. We mm -hmm. need to go back and we need to alter the reopening plan. And then I had four school board members who said no. Really? Yes. And I watched as bureaucracy and red tape and liability caused the school district, caused school board members to abdicate their authority mm -hmm. and caused horrible decisions for parents and children. And parents came. Tina will talk about having a mother come uh, and speak at a school board meeting whose child was deaf and couldn't get a medical exemption for mm -hmm. a mask. And that child was then, you know, couldn't hear. Now their mouth is covered. They're closed off from the world. Yeah, completely. Completely. Yeah. And so we had parents coming to us and normally a, a system that would make accommodations for children who had needs. Mm -hmm. And that's really what school districts are supposed to be doing. Yeah. Didn't care about parents anymore. And so I remember sitting on that school board and we have a t-shirt at Moms for Liberty, I'll tell you about that. But I remember sitting on the school board and saying to the superintendent, we do not co-parent with the government. Amen. We will partner yep. with our children's schools and we recognize that this community needs to work together. Mm -hmm. But we do not co-parent with the government. These are medical decisions that parents need to be making. Right. These are educational decisions that parents need to be making. and. Who are we to stand in the way of that? Who are you to think that you can have some other doctor come in and tell me what's best for my child? Yep. And so we fought really hard. And then uh, November uh, of, of uh, 2020, our, our school board uh, terms came to an end. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tina called me and, and said um, in December, we've got to do something. Yeah. And I said, okay, what do you wanna, <laughs> what do, you wanna do? I was gonna take a month, I was gonna take December, right? What do you wanna do? And she said, we've gotta help these parents. And it was true. We saw parent groups springing up, yeah. right? And, and in my own community, there was a parent group that's, that sprung up and we would sit there 12 hour meetings, 14 hour meetings, yeah. and these moms would be in the audience and we were wow. just looking at each other. Tina had the same. Yeah. And the two first chapters were two moms from our own counties mm -hmm. who had stepped up to lead. And, um, you know, what a blessing. Um, women just came together and said, gosh, we need to we need to work together for our yeah. kids. No, thank goodness. I mean, it, it, it may seem like an overstatement, but I don't I don't think it is. And and I happen to be a historian of early America, so I know that it's not. But there were similar groups leading up to the American Revolution of women, the Daughters of Liberty. We know the Sons of Liberty. There, uh, there were uh, Republican motherhood groups, little r Republican, 
And all of that was to be in support of faith and family and freedom, ultimately of the revolution too. And therefore, where I'm going with that, Tiffany, is that I've been arguing for the last few months that we are going through what I call a second American revolution, hopefully with no bloodshed. I don't, of course, suggest violence there, but I think what was happening is that we're, we're because of COVID, because of this long-standing thing or pattern that Americans have not really been paying attention to, which is the intrusion of government into our lives. We know that at the federal level, depending upon someone's state, they may know that at the state level. But what you put your finger on is that it was happening at the local level, that the government was at best wanting to co-parent with families. In fact, even some government and teacher union officials said, we need to get parents out of the way when it comes to their children, right? That they're almost wards of the state. All of that to say, this is, while huge for education and for kids, this is a moment. Moms for Liberty is something that really has ignited, even for those Americans who don't have kids, real encouragement about the future. And so tell us some of the most inspiring stories or incidents where y'all have really changed the outcome of particular debates across the country. You know, very early on, a friend of mine who is a lawyer in Florida and worked very hard uh, fighting against forced masking and forced mm. vaccinations said to me, um, Tiffany, you guys are war moms. Yeah, that's she right. She said, you need to understand you're war moms. It's a mm. different type of war. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, okay. <laughs> Let me wrap my head around that for a second. And then I thought about what that meant. And mm. I thought about what it meant for the future of our country. And that's where Joyful Warriors came from. Yeah. Because I always say we're going to fight like hell with a smile on our faces That's right. because our children are watching us. Mm-hmm. And I don't want our children to look back and say that this was a burden to fight for America yeah. or somehow we were angry all the time because it's a privilege yeah. to fight for this country. And so what you see all across the country are moms and dads stepping up. And we've been very focused on school board. Mm-hmm. Um, our parents know their school board members now by name. They probably didn't even know what the funding mechanism was for their district, mm-hmm. right? But parents are stepping up and getting involved. So the proudest moments for us um, we celebrate wins all the time small wins big wins sometimes it's getting a worksheet uh, out of a classroom that a parent saw was an issue yeah. um, sometimes it's winning like in Kenosha Wisconsin two of three school board seats and the vice chair of our chapter being the county supervisor and I said why did you run for county supervisor Amanda and she said well they're the ones who get to pick who runs the health department Oh, and I smart. said, aren't you a smart cookie? Yeah. Because we watched as forced quarantining of healthy children yep. to keep healthy children mm-hmm. home at two weeks at a time was horrible. It was devastating to their future. And moms watched as we knew this precious time in our children's mm-hmm. lives where every day matters was just taken from them by adults who forgot that it 14 to 15 is different than 34 to 35. Yeah. Right? That's right. And, and all the data showed that. And that's a right. remarkable thing. Right? And, but moms know it inside of yeah. themselves. Moms knew, right? Yeah. We, we knew immediately when the American Academy of Pediatrics comes out and tells moms that babies don't really need to see your face. Yeah. That's a lie. Yeah, that's right. And American parents watched as an expert class failed them mm-hmm. and said, well, who are the experts now? Well, the experts are going to have to be us. We're going to have to trust ourselves again. And we're going to have to trust each other. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think the coolest thing about Moms for Liberty, I say it all the time, who knew I was going to make so many new friends in my (laughs) 40s? Who knew we were? But parents were busy. They were raising their families. They were work. They're working right. They Mm -hmm. thought their kids were doing okay in school. And then the things that meant the most to them, they realized maybe weren't as secure. 
yeah. as what they thought. And so, um, yeah, the winds, I mean, it, it's great. And, and when one of us falter or, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's always someone else that's going to be willing to step up. Yeah. And I've watched that across the country. You watch as our chapters build. Mm-hmm. It's like a little fire starts in mm-hmm. a state and then the next county starts and then the next county starts. And it's been really neat to watch that and for the parents to learn from each other. Yeah. So what we saw for a while, like things happening in California or in mm-hmm. Washington, it would take time. Right. Right now, these parents are communicating and they're saying, you know, like, I don't put a bike helmet on my child because they've been hurt before. Right. I put a bike helmet on my child because I know there's this potential for them to get hurt. Yeah. And so parents now are looking and saying, I don't need my daughter to be sexually assaulted in a bathroom to know that that's not a good idea to have boys in the girls' bathroom Correct. because we've seen what that looks like in other places. It doesn't have to happen yeah. here, yeah. right? And so we're learning from each other. And that's probably the coolest thing. No, it, it really is. It, it does remind me to go back to the the revolution reference that in the 1760s, Sam Adams said that you could count on the revolution succeeding because of these brush fires for liberty across the country. And we are, I mean, God wired us to be a free people. Yes. I mean, every human being on the planet, the privilege that we have in the United States is that we actually, through our own individual action, can work hard enough to put government back in its box. It's a shame we have to do that. Parents, especially in America, they're pretty good consumers. They, they, they know what works, they know what doesn't work. They don't go to the same barber three times for a bad haircut. That's why we've done so much in terms of reducing regulation and, and licensing. We want people that wanna work to get to work. And I think that some of those same market principles that have made us the most dynamic, unique, uh, economy in, in the world can be applied to education so that our children can get uh, these better results and, and outcomes. And also knowing that our kids are different, the we want them to have a base education as well. But somehow we got caught in a loop in the 80s where we thought everyone would go to a four-year college with a bachelor's degree. Uh, one, that's just not human nature. A lot of people for whatever reason, don't want to go to college or aren't ready for college at 18 years old. And the jobs really, even in a dynamic economy, often two-thirds of the jobs will be available outside of that type of credential. So speaking of, of higher ed, any policy lessons there? Um, obviously, the, the Education Freedom Report card that Heritage issued on what you did so well focuses on K-12. In that context, though, obviously, is where teachers are being prepared, where K-12 students will go. They may not, but obviously, a healthy public higher education system affects us all. What's the, the landscape in that policy arena in Arizona, and what, what advice might you give leaders of other states when it comes to tackling what are not as good edu- uh, university systems in their states? I, I think it's very important that we do focus on that, and that's something that a governor can have a real impact on. I think we know what's wrong in higher education, so I don't want to focus on that. I think we also have a lot that that's right i mean for all of our flaws uh we are still the envy of the world the elite of the world want to send their children to our universities and and there's a a reason for that so i think the most important thing is that you have the best university president 
I mean, you don't want to find the traditional academic who's who's been around forever. These are they're institutions that need buffing and polishing, shaking up and, and innovation. And uh, a, a governor gets to name the regents, and the regents are really the board that hires that president. Now, I was lucky enough to inherit Michael Crow at Arizona State University and see what he was doing to change the landscape, not only on campus, but to connect it to what was happening in the state of Arizona. He said something during his in, uh, his inauguration or, or swearing in, and he said, you know, Yale is considered one of the country's finest institutions, but how has it affected New Haven? And at the time, New Haven w- was in deep trouble. And he thought part of the measurement of a university that it would have impact on that community. And I think that is a challenge that every university president should accept. We were able to new- hire a new president at University of Arizona. We had had five presidents in 11 years. And I think you know, as somebody who's run institutions, that's not going to be what's best. So I wanted to step out and say, where do we find the next Michael Crow or my other favorite president around the country was Mitch Daniels, who was the former governor of Indiana, went to Purdue and was just excelling on so many fronts. So we interviewed a, a gentleman, uh, Dr. Bobby Robbins. In, uh, he was unique. He wanted this job. He wanted to commit to it for a decade or more. This is a Stanford-trained thoracic surgeon, um, and I wanted to check his resume out because I wanted to find somebody that would be there for a decade or more. And he said, well, you can call Rick Perry, Greg Abbott, or George W. Bush to check my resume out. And I think it was our first big win against Texas. Bobby Robbins now in Tucson. Oh, here Tucson. comes a competitive <laughs> fire, Governor. <laughs> and uh, doing, doing a lot of good things for, for Southern Arizona, for, for Tucson, Pima County, and for the state of Arizona. So I think the most important thing that a governor can do is to make sure that you have university presidents where there's some alignment on, on, on values and, and performance to make sure you're appointing regents that are not patronage appointments, but hard-headed business people and subject matter experts in, in academia that will not only hold the, the president uh, accountable, but be supportive of that and select the best person when there there's an opening. And then there's things you can do like we've done around civics. We have the, the Regents Cup rather than having a, a spelling bee or focusing on other things. You know, kids weren't learning their civics. Uh, in Arizona or in our country. The first law I passed was the American Civics Act. So no kid graduates from an Arizona high school without passing the same test that a newly naturalized American takes. And these are pretty simple questions. I mean, who's the father of your country? Who fought the Civil War? Who won? But it was shocking to me that kids didn't know this because it wasn't being taught. It wasn't being tested. And we've built on that with the Sandra Day O'Connor Civic Celebration Day, where one day every year, each class has to find a way to incorporate civics. We're working on a history curriculum that will reflect the true scope of our history and all that happened along the way. I think that's also core. It's one thing to be great at math and, and know your science, but if you also don't know how special and exceptional the country we live in and how fortunate we are to have it and our responsibility in continuing it, then I don't think you've really had an education if you want to go back to the Socratic method in becoming a citizen. 
color me biased as a historian and someone who's led a couple of liberal arts schools and nothing against the math and sciences, but all the math and science achievement in the world won't matter much if we don't know where we came from, especially, I mean, this is uniquely true for America because we have the most noble civic goal in the history of the world, and that is to somehow resolve all of the pluralism we have. I mean, you know this in Arizona better than most governors, and we've done it. Imperfectly, to be sure, because our republic is a human enterprise. But, but better, I, but better than anyone else, we still have people that take tremendous risk because they want to come here. I do think the the so many of the the legal immigrants that that I know that are in the workforce are the most patriotic of Americans and and love this country. And I think that that understanding that we can get to our children and and in our families is is important because you're right there there have been plenty of things and in in the correct teaching of our history those things should come up but over the course of time we have improved i mean this whole pursuit that we're that we're all created equal uh life and liberty and then this this incredible idea that you can pursue happiness in this country and in security and 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 safety uh still the the best idea that has been uh put put forward and uh and and this is our charge here and k-12 education is so much a part of continuing it and i do think when you talk about the the liberal arts is that idea of the formation of of the full citizen uh in in addition to being prepared to go out into the real world it's those those foundations and and grounding that also have the participation in in the local community which is really where the strength of the of the country uh in any state is the money doesn't belong to the government schools education funding is meant for educating children not for propping up and protecting a particular institution whether it's public or private and by the way why would giving families a choice defund your public schools if they're doing a good job they won't lose any kids at all so you're essentially telling on yourself when you suggest that Giving families a choice will lead to a mass exodus from your schools. I think there are a lot of great public schools. I have confidence in the public school system to compete. The people making this argument don't have any confidence whatsoever in the public schools. So they're the ones that are anti-public school, not our side. But at the end of the day, the money doesn't belong to the schools. Uh, And you should be able to choose your public schools if you like. And oh, by the way, like I mentioned earlier in Arizona, the public schools spend about $13,000, $14,000 per kid. The amount that follows the child is only about half, again, because it's only the state level portion. It's about 7000 So what happens in the public schools is they get to keep thousands of dollars, the local and federal funding, for students that are no longer educating. So on a per-pupil basis, instead of having thirteen or 14000 they might even have fifteen or $16,000 per student based on how many students are leaving. In what other industry does this happen? I mean, just imagine if you stopped shopping at, I don't know, Harris Teeter or Safeway and you wanted to go to Trader Joe's. And Safeway got to keep half your grocery funding in perpetuity. That'd be a good deal for Safeway. Uh, and similarly, this is a good deal for the public schools that they get to keep any money at all for students that are no longer educating. And the last point I'll make on that this is that school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. 25 of 28 studies on the topic find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes in the public schools. So we have so much evidence on that. There's also a peer-reviewed meta-analysis from UT Austin researchers, for example, getting all of the effect sizes together, still finding in this uh, journal article in 2019 in a journal called Educational Policy, 
statistically significant overall positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes of the students in the public schools. This is, again, a win-win situation, unless you're Randy Weingarten. And, and to underscore that, and, and I think you were, you were a part of the episode I'm about to recount, in 2017 in the Texas legislative session, many of us across the education reform movement, you, we at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Heritage was involved, our mutual friends, Lindsey Burke and Jay Green and others, at, on this special needs education savings account bill. And I, and I mentioned this to people in the audience who may not be specialists in this because it's telling about how protective and territorial the teachers union is. The way that bill was constructed to cut to the chase was that there would be the state allotment, the, the state funding of students that would follow those students if in fact they had a, a special need. It seemed like a slam dunk from the standpoint of charity, right? If nothing else. But it kept the, the existing school district where those students were not just whole, but a 10% plus up to sort of, it's sort of like a political giveaway, right? Those of us on the reform side said, whatever it takes to help these million kids, but they rejected it and they stopped that bill from getting passed. This is endemic of what happens in state legislatures all the time. Well, it's because they want power and power isn't just in money, but it's also in being able to control other people's children. And that's a problem. And this is what's coming out uh, with the Virginia governor's race, with other uh, Democratic politicians essentially stepping in over and over again across the country is it's, it's a battle of who do the kids belong to? Does it, do the, the, is the community responsible of determining what, what the education of the child looks like? Or are parents the primary decision makers when it comes to their kids' education? Republicans are, are of the, the latter issue in, in general nationwide. And I think that's why we're seeing Republicans up on the issue of education, because your kids don't belong to the government. Parents are the best decision makers. They know and care more about their kids' uh, educational outcomes than anybody else. And they certainly know more about their kids' than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. You know, and there's so many options we haven't really tapped into. So with the COVID school shutdowns, there was a lot of new education models that came on the scene beyond the virtual, beyond the hybrid. You look at micro schools, learning pods, um, private tutors who might just be retired teachers, grandparents, parents with a background, more and more homeschool co-ops. We saw this explosion of different delivery methods um, beyond the virtual, beyond the hybrid, and those are continuing to flourish. The number of micro schools popping up nationwide is unbelievable, but they don't all look the same. And I think that's the same with the virtual. The virtual isn't always going to look the same. It's going to be tailored. And as technology moves forward, especially virtual in the private sector than the public provided, um, they're thinking of creative solutions. You know, they're smaller, they're more nimble. Uh, they're not dealing with the teachers' unions and all this bureaucracy. And so they're advancing how they're delivering. They're very responsive to serve parents' needs, get feedback. Just like we saw in the traditional, you know, we had two extreme examples during COVID when schools shut down. So schools shut down in March of 2020. That spring, that summer, you had private schools polling parents saying, what do you want for this fall? How can we best serve your family? What are your concerns? What are you looking for? You know, we're here to help. They took that data and then they made a plan and opened in the fall of 2020. Now, I was a part of a private school as a consultant that they wanted to open. That's what their families wanted. They opened in full, but they had about 5% of their population where um, maybe someone in the family had a compromised immune system or something was going on and they said, we don't want to miss out on the school community, but we need to be virtual another semester, another year. 
Uh, so in addition to opening full time, they were so responsive to serve the families. They also build a virtual academy, and that's where I came in to help. Flip side, you've got these traditional public schools saying, you know, in that summer, what's best for our adults? How can we leverage this thing? The teacher union bosses were saying, we're not opening. Like, our kids are hostage right now. We are going to take full advantage of this. I mean, so extreme. You know, out in, just one example, Los Angeles Unified School District, uh, they started putting together an agenda that had nothing to do with education of children or even the union members' working conditions said, we're demanding that you put a moratorium on charter schools before we'll open our school. Completely irrelevant. You know, you need to defund, defund the police. Again, not relevant. And then another one was Medicare for all. And so they took advantage. There wasn't the focus on what's best for children. What do families want? And that curtain was pulled back. Parents saw that. They also saw what was happening in these remote Zoom sessions, you know, very limited academics, poor quality. Um, and then these political agendas being pumped in at the expense of reading, writing, math, what their children desperately needed. And so there's been a mass exodus of the public schools, um, and it's going to continue. And as universal school choice continues to grow, as we saw in Arizona, absolutely landmark legacy of Governor Doug Ducey, um, combine that with the educational entrepreneurs and these innovative delivery models, those two hand in hand, you're going to get more and more people leaving the traditional public school. And when you do, you break up that monopoly. You add competition. Um, you add the opportunity for innovation. Um, and that's the only way to get any traction with those powerful teacher unions is money. Money talks with them. So you get families to leave. Families that have left aren't coming back. We've seen, you know, they've experienced education's better, customer service is better. This aligns with our family values. And the flip side, you know, the unions are taking notice. They really overplayed their hand. In the last two and a half years as governor, we've been able to raise the average minimum salary for public school teachers, including charter schools, uh, from 40000 to over 48000 with this year's budget. And if you think about it, there's opportunities for college people coming out of college. What do you want to do? Fewer people want to go into teaching than maybe 25 or 30 years ago. And I'm not saying this is the only reason, but, but that certainly helps to make it more attractive. Uh, I do think that they don't want to be, by and large, part of, of schools if it's part of, a, of an agenda uh, by unions or other interest groups. And I also think school discipline is very important, and we're looking at ways where we can stand up for teachers in terms of ensuring uh, that disruptive students aren't able to, to dominate the classroom. But I think there's a lot of uh, things going on there. Uh, but the reality is, you, talk, you hear about a nationwide teacher shortage. Uh, Florida per capita is less than, I think, 30-some states in terms, of, in terms of our vacancies. And I think part of the reason is, is because we've done things like, like raise the average minimum salary. Uh, we've also enacted a military vets recruitment program so that if you've served for four years or more on active duty, you've been discharged honorably, you have a 2.5 GPA, and you have 60 hours uh, of college credit, uh, you're able to get uh, provisional certification and you could be hired to go into the classroom. Now that passed our legislature unanimously, uh, but it's now been attacked by teachers unions because they say you can't just put any old warm body in front of students. Well, let me tell you, as a Navy veteran, our veterans aren't just any other warm bodies. Uh, they're people that have served this country. 
And I recently announced a proposal for next legislative session where we are going to embrace the idea of apprenticeships within the school system. At the end of the day, you can sit there in a college class and listen to some professor bloviate. That is not going to make you a good teacher. In fact, I don't know, a lot of times that's not even applicable for being in the classroom at all. So we really believe that getting hands-on experience and learning under the tutelage of somebody that has done well is probably the best type of education you have. So for people that have an associate's degree, they're gonna have an opportunity uh, to go in, work under the supervisor of an experienced teacher, learn how to manage the classroom, learn how to teach while they continue to accumulate credit, credit hours and eventually get their degree. And the teacher that is supervising uh, will get a $4,000 bonus. And so it's good for them as well to be able to do it. So I think we're putting proposals in place that's gonna be able to meet the need uh, to have good people in the classroom. Uh, we're also a state that's been very strong on post-secondary education. Right now, our state, our higher ed, public higher education systems rank number one in the country by U.S. News and World Report. One of the reasons that's true is because we are the most affordable higher education system in the country. Since I've been governor, there have been no tuition increases at our state universities. And so you can go as an in-state resident, you can go to University of Florida, Florida State, all these schools, average is about $6,300 for tuition for a year. There's not very many places around this country where you could do that. We also offer Bright Future scholarships, which will pay for either all or most of that tuition for a, for a pretty significant number of our students. And so our view is we don't want to just see universities escalate tuition. They make the, uh, their administrative staff gets bloated. They, they fund more bureaucracy and all these other things. It's not impacting the quality of the education. And you see it in these private universities where they've done all this. All these students that they're talking about in debt, why aren't the universities on the hook for this? They have made a fortune off these loans. And And, you know, Biden has this proposal, which is not constitutional because he's unilaterally putting almost a trillion dollars of liability on taxpayers without congressional authorization. But uh, if you think about it, there's no reform to higher education at all offered this. It's just basically like, hey, if, if, if you have debt, taxpayer will pick it up. I think it's $6,000 per taxpayer is what the liability would be. Those who work to pay their loans off, well, you're not going to get a mulligan on that. You're just going to have, have done it. Uh, so the colleges, they raise tuition. They have the loans that people can take out more and more. And if you're producing students going $100,000 in debt and they can't find gainful employment to be able to pay those debts off, then you are doing something wrong and you should be held accountable. We've also made reforms to our uh, universities in terms of tenured professors. And so I signed legislation this year that will require all tenured professors to undergo review every five years, and they will be able to be let go if they're not performing. And while we're proud of our universities and we're proud that it's affordable, we've also been very clear since I've been governor 
that a four-year degree from a traditional university is not the only way you su can succeed in life. And in fact, it's not always the best route for people to try to succeed in life. So we've embraced workforce education. Our goal when I became governor was to take us from the bottom half of states to become number one in workforce education by the year 2030. We're on our way to doing that. Uh, we've expanded the number of apprenticeships that are offered throughout the state of Florida. And our high school students oftentimes can get a credential where they're certified in a lot of these high demand fields and they have job offers right out of high school. And if you look at what we've done with our state colleges, we've expanded opportunities there for things like truck drivers or people like diesel mechanics to fix the trucks. You look at all the supply chain problems you've had, Part of it is you don't have enough people to be able to fill these spots uh, that are willing to do it. So we're making sure that we're, that we're standing up there. And the result is a lot of these students are going to go through no debt, and many of them will be making six figures within just a couple years. The truck drivers are making that immediately once they go. Uh, so let's just look to see where the opportunities are. And you're not any worse than anybody else because you didn't get a four-year degree. In fact, think of all the people that had four-year degree in zombie studies with $100,000 in debt, and then they end up in a job they could add at a high school. You look at, compare someone that goes into electrical, they're making 75, 80 grand, then they're making 100 grand, then they start their own business in their mid-20s, and they start making you know, really significant uh, income. Uh, those are good pathways. And we're not telling you you have to do one or the other, but what we don't want to do is try to shoehorn every single student that comes through our school system into traditional four-year universities. They need to know there's a variety of paths you can do and find what's best for you and then pursue your dreams. And what we'll actually have is we'll have high school students that are pursuing both. They will take AP courses, but then they'll also get a certification in welding so they can see and, and, and enjoy those opportunities. So, so we're proud of that. I will say, though, since I've been governor, probably the most significant flashpoint that we've seen, of course, in Florida, but even all over the country, uh, has been our emphasis on the rights of parents to help direct the education and upbringing of their kids. And part of this was COVID, I think, awoke a lot of different parents to what was going on in the schools. I do think some of the really sharper ideological agendas have been more recent in terms of what they've been trying to do. And so this all came to a head over the last few years. And states like Florida have led by enacting a Parents' Bill of Rights, which we did in 2021. We also this year enacted curriculum transparency legislation. You as a parent have the right to know what is being taught in your kid's school. You have a right to know what is in, say, a middle school library. And when you hear about the left talking about saying, oh, you know, they're trying to, quote, ban books, just understand, adults can do what they want. But do you think it's appropriate for a sixth grader to have access to books with hardcore pornography in their library? Most parents don't. And so now in Florida, they have an opportunity to fight back and stand up for what is, what is in the best interest of their kids. We've also looked at all the, the curriculum and what, what's been going on in the schools. And our view is very simple. And we've just drawn a very firm line in the sand. The purpose of our school system is to educate kids, not to indoctrinate kids. We, Oh,